Okay, well, hello, and thank you everyone for joining us. Um, we're here today to discuss cybersecurity together with Hub Security's very own VP of Solution Engineering, Noam Joual, uh, along with a number of security experts, including Merit Baer, Samra Kazmi, Fabrizio Di Carlo, and Dr. Wendy Ng. Ah, and sorry, and one more person, which I think I might have left out and Victoria Van Oosmelen. So we'll start a webinar with a brief introduction from uh, Noam, and um, he will give a brief introduction on today's discussion topic, and then our panelists um, will each get a chance to briefly introduce themselves. Um, afterwards, we'll get into a bit of a deeper discussion on everything related to security, uh, including its ongoing threats and solutions. Um, and as usual, we'll leave about 30 minutes towards the end of our discussion for a short Q&A. So if you have any questions uh, throughout the discussion, um, just drop them in the Q&A section below and we will get to them um, at the end later on. Now we have an impressive lineup of panelists tonight and I'm excited to have them introduce themselves to you. But first we'll begin with a few words from Noam um, before we hand off the mic for introductions. Uh, Noam Chor, the stage is yours. Perfect, thanks a lot, Journey. And, uh... Hello everyone, thank you for being here. Thank you for being engaged in the chat. I see there's already a lot of uh, interest and questions, so that's, uh, that's perfect. Uh, my name is uh, Noam Dror. I run solution engineering at Hub Security. Hub Security is a confidential computing technology company. And uh, today we're going to talk about zero trust. It's been a hot topic for a while. A lot of people think about it different ways and, in different uh, things, the, the industry is using the term in, in different ways. So I hope that today's session is going to help uh, us and the industry in general have a better understanding and leverage the concept uh, uh, in a more of a unified way. Uh, a little bit of history about uh, Zero Trust. Uh, it goes all the way back to 2004, the Jericho Forum talked about uh, deparameterization. Uh, which tells us that it really begins around networks. Uh, at around 2014, Google started the Beyond Corp document to talk about uh, identity and how to make sure to authenticate, uh, you know, without VPNs and uh, and getting uh, directly into applications. In 2017, Gartner uh, talked about something they call CARTA, which was the Continuous Adaptive Risk and Trust. Uh, and that, uh, and right after that, uh, Forrester released in 2018 what they call the Zero Trust uh, Extended Ecosystem Report. And that expanded Zero Trust beyond network into Zero Trust data, Zero Trust workloads, devices, people, uh, automation, uh, automation orchestration and, and visibility and analytics. Uh, so there was, there was a lot of um, stuff that happened uh, recently. And then uh, recently, uh, NIST released uh, in 2020, uh, special publication 800-207, uh, and they uh, talked about zero trust. They define zero trust uh, as a term for an evolving set of cybersecurity, um, move to uh, defense from static network-based perimeters focus, to focus on users, assets, and resources. So it's all about how do we uh, do not uh, trust 
just the network or just the location or just the, the ownership, uh, but we uh, invest more in authentication authorization for the subject, the user and the devices uh, before we give any kind of access to applications and data. Uh, so that's how they define it. So I'm looking forward to learn from this uh, distinguished panel and uh, discuss this uh, topic about zero trust. Uh, so let's uh, have a, a great session. Great, thank you so much, Noam. And we're glad that you could take the time to be us, uh, with us here today. Um, now I'd like to just take a few minutes to do a quick introduction round, um, starting with Dr. Nji. Would you mind giving our audience a bit of background on yourself and your field of expertise? Sure, thank you. So um, I am uh, OneWeb's Cloud Security Architect Lead um, and Subject Matter Expert. Um, I actually started my career about well, over a decade ago with Cisco uh, before moving into security. Uh, before that, I um, that's my commercial career. Before that, I actually started a, uh, I actually, my academic background was actually in medical genetics um, and sort of just bit of crossbreed between uh, between sort of academia. I've been sort of quite passionate about sharing knowledge with the community and I've been sharing blogs and thought leadership material for the past five years. Thank you so much. Uh, we're really glad that you could be here with us today, Doctor. Um, let's go on to uh, Samra, Samra Kazmi. Uh, hello, um, great to be here. Great to be among such a distinguished panel. Um, my name is Samra Kazmi. I am a risk and security um, consultant based out of New York. Uh, my background uh, has been in um, uh, highly regulated financial services industry for almost 25 years. Um, I did uh, uh, briefly work at uh, a number of SaaS companies, uh, helping, um, again, large uh, financial financial institutions, regulated institutions in their digital transformation efforts. And now I just do that independently uh, for some of the larger um, uh, global financial institutions, helping them build out. Uh, so I'm also a zero trust subject matter expert. So helping them build out their um, zero trust roadmaps, their, their strategy um, and any like tactical issues they have around uh, cyber risk. Um, thank you. Next, time, next up, we have uh, Fabrizio Di Carlo. Hello, everyone. I'm Fabrizio Di Carlo. I'm working, I'm a security architect for the Deutsche uh, Borg Group, the German Stock Exchange. You can see behind me. Uh, in my spare time, I'm doing consultancy or mentoring for uh, startups in various industries. And I'm a practitioner of Zero Trust from 2017, more or less. So I had the chance to explore Zero Trust for uh, IoT and Gregor on to explore Zero Trust in a more enterprise world with the, with the companies I'm working for. Great, thank you. Very excited um, for our discussion with you today. Um, next up, we have Victoria Van Roosten Malin. Hi guys, my name is Victoria. I have a background in engineering and I'm the Chief Security Officer and Data Protection Officer at Cousteau based in the Netherlands. And Cousteau is a social media management platform that helps marketing and communication specialists to create better content. And well, as you might guess, I'm responsible for security and privacy affairs there. Great, thank you, Victoria. And last but not least, we have Merit Barre. Hi, thank you. Um, yes, Merit Bear here. I am a principal in the office of the CISO. 
so the Chief Information Security Officer at AWS, Amazon Web Services, so the cloud. Um, and I work on getting our own security even better um, as AWS running on AWS. Um, and then I also do a lot of um, C-level conversations. So when a, a customer CISO wants to talk to our CISO, that's often me. Um, so doing you know patterns and and best practices and thinking through how we can empathize with and um, you know make the secure thing to do the easiest thing to do. Right. I love that pitch. That's great. Um, a great uh, job description. So I, I wanted to get into, we're going we're gonna to get into a, a bit of a deeper discussion now, and um, if I could break it down um, for you guys, we're going to start with the basic question, which is what is zero trust and what, what isn't it? Um, from there, we'll move on to a bit of uh, information on approaches and architecture, which I'd love to get you know you guys uh, your guys' uh, insights on more, and also some of the adoption challenges that organizations face when looking to, uh, to start on the zero trust journey. Uh, we'll wrap up with uh, the future of zero trust and where you guys see things heading. Um, so just to begin um, our discussion off, uh, I wanted to ask Samra, uh, maybe you can give us a bit of an introduction. What does zero trust uh, mean to you? Um, so that is such a loaded question, and I know everyone has a different answer to it. Uh, but what I will start with uh, is, like you said, what is it not? What it is not is just one single piece of software that you can plug in and feel like you're now zero trust compliant, whatever that means. Um, it's not a one-time a project that IT is doing in some corner in a vacuum by itself. Um, it's not, uh, uh, you know, it's not also um, uh, something that is um, uh, up in the ether and uh, a, a, a philosophy that people do not understand. I come from risk and I really deal with a lot of, uh, uh, with it on the business side. And for me, zero trust is really a change management project. It involves people, it, it should involve a use case uh, based approach. So you should really have a use case in front of you before you actually proceed. Um, it's actually a cross-functional project. So you really um, need to look at it from like the business perspective. Uh, you need to involve business, you need to involve security, you need to involve the IT department, and uh, you need to involve uh, risk. So it's really a partnership. You definitely need to involve your people. It is also a cultural a shift for your organization. Um, the, uh, it is, in fact, a business enabler. If done correctly, it can uh, really free up a lot of time when it comes to your people. It can uh, reduce a lot of um, uh, frustrations that they have, um, constantly entering passwords for every application that they have. Um, it's actually an iterative process. So uh, I know it sounds cliche, but when you say it's not a destination, it's actually a journey, but that's really what it is. You've got to continuously work on it. And, and really what it does is it creates cyber resilience within the organization. So you're, if you are um, uh, following this approach, uh, you will, and, and there's no right 
way to do it. But if you are uh, following this approach, you are going to be able to build a lot of organizational resilience within your uh, within the firm, uh, and you're um, able to really educate your own people about. Uh, uh, about security and privacy. So that's actually how I see it. Uh, thank you for that, Samara. Merit, my next question is for you, but maybe you can tell us how old or new is the concept of zero trust? And when we talk about zero trust, what exactly do we mean? <laughs> Yeah, I think um, so. Obviously, it's as we have mentioned a couple of times so far, it's been around kind of on the landscape in various incarnations um, for a long time now, um, at least 15 years. Um, and I think, as with other kind of terms of art, um, it has uh, value to the extent that you can find ways to make it valuable in your organization. Um, but it doesn't have an inherent, you know, as Samra pointed out, like if someone's trying to sell you zero trust, do not believe them. Um, you know, this is a set of um, processes and and kind of a, a framework or a mindset for how to approach um, security and and defense in depth these days. So I think you know the core concept here is to reduce possibly to zero would have been an inherent trust based on network position. So the idea that you would get in through a perimeter and then there would be open trust. Um, and I think that you know given the rise of cloud computing, among other things, you know, we're looking at more identity centric fine grained controls in addition to those perimeter centric ones that might filter out signal from noise. Of course, this could be, you know, there's a lot of different incarnations. This could be conceived of at the network layer and, and whether we should be um, allowing for packet flow and then um, enforcing security above that, or it could be conceived of at the identity and access management layer and, you know, humans and devices or, you know, software components. So there's a lot of different ways that this can play out. But I think, you know, our core um, conviction at AWS is that there shouldn't be a binary choice between those kind of perimeter, more traditional controls, even if they are taking the form of not just a VPN, but like a VPC, a virtual private cloud that enforces some form of perimeter, um, and those fine-grained identity-centric controls, things like um, security groups and access control lists and uh, permission boundaries. Um, and that ideally, these are not only um, both in play, but that they are augmenting and aware of one another. So something like a VPC endpoint policy would be an example of that, where you're um, filtering out that um, signal to noise at the perimeter base, but you're also allowing for very fine-grained identity-centric permissions. Thank you, Marriott. Victoria, tell me, what are some of the benefits of a zero-trust approach? I think Samra and Merit already kind of uh, pointed that out, but I think, you know, what's so important is that, you know, if you move away from the traditional hard shell and soft core idea that, you know, once you're in, you overly trust someone and the zero trust concept or, you know, it's kind of a design principle. So it really takes that into account that you don't have the traditional boundaries that each time, each time there is an access to something that's of importance that you want to verify, like, is this uh, you know, a valid request? Is this person at this moment in time, does he or she really needs to perform this action? And this be is becoming so important because you know, nowadays we live in a different world. We don't have the traditional office wall. We don't have the traditional main company network. We no longer have the static IP addresses. You're like we are everywhere and we're crossing the different network boundaries. I mean, 
uh, cloud-like solutions, uh, SaaS solutions, um, even AWS, you know, where, where Merit is uh, from, Google, remote devices, our laptops, our mobile phones. We have built one super network and the main benefit of Zero Trust is to really plug into that and to really support that system of being flexible and to maintain that flexibility. And by looking at things differently, by not overly trusting, you know, once you're in, you must be good, you're actually creating a more safer foundation and, you know, able to continue this way of working in this interconnected world. There's so many benefits. Um, Fabrizio, maybe you can tell us the zero trust is usually associated with networks and networks and segmentation, but would you mind to give maybe a quick background on how zero trust has evolved over the years? To the yeah. Yeah, sure. So Noam already mentioned some of the key points, but uh, I will probably uh, mention again. So in 2003, there was this uh, Jericho Forum, uh, which was a forum created by networking vendors and some industry CISO uh, from Royal Post or uh, other kind of industry. And yeah, the principle was effect the the outcome was the Jericho commandments, but the main focus was the, the, the perimilization. Now, these principles were then taken by John Kinderberg, that at the time was uh, an analyst with Forrester, and these were translated into the document of no more Chewy uh, centers, uh, zero class model of information security in 2012. At the same time, more or less, Google had uh, an, a, a very big breach, which was Operation Aurora. This was around 2009 and was disclosed in 2010, and it started with Beyond Corp. So there were several movements in the industry about that, and uh, uh, these were communicated by some publication, like the 2017 book uh, by uh, Bark and Gilman Zero Trust Networks, which was the one that uh, made me passionate about the, the topic. Um, so, but, uh, and they were merely focused on networking. Uh, however, we already mentioned that uh, networking is not everything, especially with the cloud and container. Um, so I'm thinking about my, my, my typical workload. And therefore, the, uh, the, the, the zero trust approach was shifting to, uh, to, to networking to more identity focus in order to be a little bit more universal. Uh, so Forrester uh, expanded their model with the zero trust extended. Uh, I can uh, talk about zero trust architecture and zero trust network and networking, and as well as Gartner with, with Carta or Microsoft with, a, with, a, with their approach about zero trust. So effectively, identity either of the device or the uh, or identity for the user is actually the key component of a zero trust architecture. Uh, but we will explore the topic in further question, I'm pretty sure. So I will not spoil the, the, the various questions for now. Great, thanks for video. Um, Wendy, how does a zero trust approach uh, differ from some of the controls deployed in traditional on-prem networks? So I think it's 
um, the, the controls are, it's effectively the same type of controls, it's identity access, it's segmentation, it's just where those controls are applied. So, um, you know, many organizations, I think some, you know, I, I've seen as in sort of um, in my consulting days, where the, the, the network eventually, you know, they try to sort of segment it at the beginning, but then it becomes flat, it, it sort of, um, effectively, you, you're not, um, you're not doing sort of your monitoring once, um, uh, as Victoria mentioned, is that sort of hard shell soft center, once you're in, you're basically, you have access to sort of every assets and you, you do, they do have, they do have monitoring, but it's probably on the external side, they do, they do monitor traffic, they do monitor what's, um, who's accessing it, but the, I think the monitoring is actually sort of on the exterior where with zero trust you're basically just trying to reduce that to the actual asset itself so the actual perimeter if you could call it that is with the asset that you're trying to um uh you're trying to protect um in terms of control it's far more it allows you to uh, provide far more granular control and um and sort of permissions um you know, even time-based access rights compared to some of the um, sort of more traditional on-prem, you know, not quite so segmented networks. Moving on, um, I just want to touch on, you know, ransomware for a second because we've been hearing a lot about it lately and um, especially when it comes to health, uh, industries like healthcare. Um, Merit, maybe you can clarify for us, does Zero Trust protect against ransomware? Yeah, you know, this is a ransomware is obviously prominent in the news these days, um, but in some ways, just like zero trust ransomware is nothing new right it's been around since at least the 70s it's just that I think. With the rise of monetization strategies and other incentives to enact it, um, you know it's become very prominent these days. Um, I think that um, they are connected, right? Because one of the, or at least um, when you start reviewing the best practices that will protect you from ransomware, it's going to look a lot like zero trust best practices. Um, you know, and so I think because ultimately we're not generally seeing like zero days showing up in ransomware. We're seeing like known stuff that folks are either, you know, they've got unpatched systems and then it's coming in through phishing attacks for the most part. So, um, you know, as other panelists have pointed out, part of the value to your organization is just assessing how much lateral movement you're allowing. Um, of course, there's going to be some tension here or like some texture because you want to reduce the friction of your users to be able to access internal applications. And then at the same time, you don't want to allow for east, west and north, south movement to be totally unrestricted. Um, so I think there's, you know, a certain process driven, you know, aspect to this. Um, certainly just as with, so, you know, a lot of the um, current headlines do revolve around unpatched Windows systems. So like patch your stuff. Um, but then also, you know, you can always have it in the form of something like a credential compromise, where even on in the cloud, if someone gets access to your credentials and they encrypt or delete your copies, you know, you may be in a bad position. And I think what we really would want to see folks doing is, um, and, you know, Wendy mentioned this, is like really conceiving of your forensics in a different way. So in the cloud, your forensics, you're not going to log into the host. Like we manage those for you. We patch that for you. So like, Yay, that's one thing you don't have to worry about. 
but you do have to think through how you're going to do forensics and that looks like logging and monitoring now so you're doing when you're doing infrastructure as code you're doing security as code and so now you can reason about your permissions you can scope them down for example we have a tool called access analyzer that allows you to look at unused permissions and scope them down um, or to look for escalation paths or a tool called tiros that helps you do network reachability it can tell you whether you have an internet facing endpoint um but there are you know there there are elements of that infrastructure as code that are now freeing you up to reason about the security of your networks and so it will look a little different but ultimately what we're really talking about when we talk about zero trust is like this mentality that you should be able to have um you know control and fine-grained um permissioning around not just identities but also software and other aspects of what what you're allowing um on your networks great and it's uh, really wonderful that amazon has all those tools available um for its customers moving on to our next subtopic which is just approaches and uh, talking about zero trust architecture um let's start off with fabrizio imagine uh, you're a company, you're looking to start on your zero trust journey. What, in your opinion, are the key elements uh, for a zero trust uh, architecture on a logical level? Yeah, sure. Uh, I, I, I think that's why they call me zero trust architect. But, uh, uh, well, you have effectively, from a, a very uh, 10,000 feet overview, you have three ma major components. One is the policies that uh, Merrick was mentioning earlier. So it, the, a policy is re really uh, a statement that specifies which subject that can be a user or can be a system, like serverless, like Lambda function, uh, can do what, so the action and where, uh, so the, the target system. And the target system is better to be uh, specific, narrow, and not really generic. And on what kind of conditions? For example, why I would like to access uh, my code repository from a mobile device, or why I want to access uh, uh, the, uh, I don't know, uh, some certain documents from my um, personal laptop. So, or if I want to access that, then uh, allow me the, uh, to use the uh, multi-factor authentication. This policy they need to be enforced by some attributes that are in identity. So it, it should be attribute-based access control. Uh, the second component, and I think it's the core of a zero-class architecture, is a policy decision point. Now, there is no specific hardware for that and most likely in an enterprise is a combination of different system and that's why from a personal suggestion i will suggest to use a vendor that has uh, uh, a set of api so they can intercommunicate between different application system and the policy decision point must be tied with the identity provider of the uh, of the company and as well need to be able to map all the attributes that you define uh, where for attributes uh, I uh, I mean uh, for example the name of department the, the name of uh, uh, the teams and so on so something that is uh, uh, clarify who should uh, who should have access to what and lastly the, uh, the, the the final component should be the enforcement points 
Uh, now, reinforcement points can be uh, uh, really different types. It could be the endpoint, it could be the, um, the palm. So they, 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 they may have a different shape and they need to be distributed all over the network to effectively to uh, enforce, to implement and enforce the policy in the policy decision point. Uh, I want to take the occasion to answer one of the questions that I was looking for uh, about the uh, new generation firewall. Uh, I'm not really sure about any specific vendors of platform when you design a, a, a zero cross architecture. Uh, definitely you have to consider some of the uh, to reuse your current technologies, to reuse uh, the, the, the things you have in the company. Uh, there are several reasons for that. First of all, you are already investing in them uh, and you train your teams for that. Uh, however, that should need to have an assessment. So if you have a firewall, a classic firewall, uh, that has the, the source, destination, the port and protocol, this is definitely not good for game. For zero class architecture, because it's not dynamic, it's not enforcing the policy, and so on. Uh, however, if the same firewall has uh, a policy driven automation or API integration that uh, can do uh, certain action with certain triggers, this is this can definitely be a zero trust policy enforcement points. So there are several ways to implement a zero trust architecture. And the best way to start is definitely to assess the current technology you have and to see what you can reuse and orchestrate uh, in order to, to implement that. Now I'm over to you. Um, maybe you could share with us what are some other types of layers and controls that are typical to zero trust architecture? Yeah. So first, I agree with Fabrizio, authorization is key. And you talked about all the different layers of authorization with a PDP and a PAP and, a, and all that good stuff of authorization. So that, that's perfect. I, I like to think about it as layers from user to data. So, and user doesn't have to be a human, it can be a process and application. So from users to data, what are you going through? Usually you would go through your own device. If it's a human, so you have some sort of a desktop or an endpoint or some sort of a, a mobile device. Then you go through the network. Then you go through some sort of a compute environment. On the computer environment, you have some sort of an application. That application get access to the data, which is on storage. So you need to look at the entire path between the user and the data. And you need to provide security services to all of those layers. So Fabrizio talked about authorization, of course, authentication would be important. And of course, you know, multi-factor, the, the better, the, the bigger, the better, as more authentication you can do. Uh, identity and governance for those solutions are important. Uh, and then other services like encryption would be important in, in each one of those, uh, of those environments. Uh, SIM and SOAR, right? You want to get logs from all of those applications and make sure that you look at uh, anomalies or any kind of, uh, you know, interesting behaviors. You want to look at that. You want to look at uh, what is the type of data. So maybe look at a DLP solution in different layers. You want to look at, or, you know, Casby would be like a DLP, but for cloud applications, you want to look at what data is going there and if it's allowed or not allowed. 
So there are different types of controls you put on those layers between the user and the data, but that's the, the, the gist of it, right? You need to understand how to get to the data and how do I protect each one of those layers and components on the way with, um, you know, with defense in depth, as many controls as I can in order to get there. That, that's the gist of it. Um, Wendy, any insights or suggestions from you for those starting out on their zero trust uh, journey? So I think one of the first things that you should ask yourself is what are the assets you're trying to protect? How sensitive it is? And um, what is the overhead that you're adding to protecting it? Because what you're effectively saying, you're not having the perimeter, the perimeter is the assets itself. Um, that uh, those overhead is it enough um is it uh is your asset valuable enough for you to add that additional overhead um if somebody is able to access your assets how you're trying to effectively it's granular um control granular network control as merit and victoria said earlier you're effectively trying to reduce um, you're just trying to lock down asset uh, access to assets to a very granular level. It, before you start out on this journey, I think you should ask the question, how, how sensitive, how important are my assets? And is it worth spending the effort, the overhead for, um, for licensing, for, you know, uh, if, if somebody lock, uh, for training, for staff changing their mentality? In, in 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 sort of before you start on this um, on this journey. Yeah, definitely. Um, I see many many heads shaking agreeing with that. Um, Samra, over to you. With so much hype about your trust and and multitude of vendors in the market offering products and services for zero trust compliance. Um, in your opinion, how does a large organization with multiple stakeholders uh, successfully cut through the noise? Yeah, I think, um, you know, Wendy uh, gave a very good uh, synopsis of that, but um, I would step uh, a little bit back uh, because the large organizations uh, where I've been consulting, um, they sometimes, there's a lot of noise from the vendors, there's a lot of noise internally, um, there's all this cross-functional tussle going on, um, and, you know, stakeholders just don't know what to uh, how, how to take the first step and on a pr practical basis what i would say is like go to the absolute basics which is you know get your cyber hygiene right and and uh what wendy i think alluded a, a lot to that is like you know uh figure out which devices uh because the device is now the perimeter so make sure you've inventoried all the devices you've inventoried all your assets and and the users um, look at uh, how you can um, develop the um, assign micro segmentation and perimeters, micro perimeters. Uh, make sure you have the patch updates uh, on a regular basis. But those are basics and something like, uh, and, and a lot of it, when you set out to do, you realize that you're already doing it. So for instance, identity is, is such, a, uh, such a fundamental part of it. Um, and going to something like SSO enablement and multi-factor auth authentication, that's just such a fundamental step. That's such a 
practical step uh, and such an easy low hanging fruit um, that you can actually implement. And most organizations are already doing that. So I would say just go to these like low hanging fruit first. And then on a strategic level, uh, I would say uh, every organization's uh, uh, organization is obviously different. So I would say take the zero trust maturity model assessment. So it's out there on the web freely available. You can go through that and you can figure out where you are in this zero trust journey, how mature you are, your people are, and what exactly, where exactly do the gaps lie? So it really is very good at identifying um, your, uh, your position in this journey while uh, also telling you what the gaps are. Um, and then what, it can- Sorry to interrupt you. What tool is that that you're referring to? Uh, zero trust maturity model assessment. It's uh, you you could possibly find it on like Forrester's website, but it's generally available on um, uh, uh, on on the web. So it's just a uh, it's it's like basically an assessment. It asks you a bunch of questions about your organization, uh, what you're doing, what you're not doing, and it'll just tell you well this is. Uh, the best possible starting point for you. Um, and it's, it's, I'm not quite sure who actually started it, but it's pretty much out there. Um, and yeah. I would, I mean, not to um, get textured here, but I would take anything you find on the web with a grain of salt. Um, so right. I mean, I would look at who put it out and I think NIST has a framework, for example, there's a couple, you know, organizations that, but ultimately, as we've already said, these are just frameworks. So, you know, there's no, um, prescriptive guidance that's going to be um, the gospel. Absolutely, mind. absolutely. So this is all to inform where you should be. You know, it's not, uh, once again, it, nothing is set in stone. Every organization is different. You need to really have this self-reflection, self-assessment of where you are, what your gaps are. And tools like these are helpful in, and it's just a questionnaire. It's not like, uh, it's not a, um, it's not a piece of software or anything. It's just a questionnaire which asks you some very basic questions in terms of architecture, in terms of um, data, et cetera. And then you can actually figure out, you know, where, uh, not only what your gaps are, but what your, you can use it to inform what your priorities uh, should be based on your own, uh, on the complexity of your own business model. So that can help you build out a robust roadmap. Of course, that's not the only thing you rely on, uh, but, but based on um, where you are in the, uh, where you are on the whole spectrum of um, side of security, uh, you can, you can assess where uh, you know, where is the logical best place to start? Uh, where should be, what should be your priorities? So th those are things that I would say um, start off with. Uh, 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 and, I, and, and I actually believe that this is like something that um, you would find on the Forrester website. Um, it's just basically an assessment to where exactly are you in the zero trust maturity model. Um, and, and then you can go ahead and, and move on from there. Um, and that is, uh, that is a very strategic uh, uh, not this questionnaire, but ju just generally, it gives you a very strategic view when you do this self-assessment 
any type of self-assessment, even if you don't use this particular model, you can do an assessment of where exactly you are, what the gaps are, and then uh, then you can identify the, the vendors, then you can identify who might be able to plug in those gaps or whether you need to build something in-house or whether there are uh, vendors that you need to eliminate. Um, so basically also it can, uh, you know, you can go through the entire supply chain um, that, you, that you are relying on um, to see where your vulnerabilities and your threats are. Um, so again, I feel like it's, it's more, um, it, it, it's more of a self-reflection, self-assessment kind of an exercise, uh, especially I'm talking more about the uh, from from a business uh, and a risk perspective. And most importantly, this is about business enablement. Of course, you don't want to, I think um, somebody else mentioned it earlier, you don't want to create friction. You want to enable uh, your, uh, your employees. So make sure that uh, whatever uh, approach you're, um, uh, you're pursuing uh, is not going to cause any frustration, but also if you have use cases in front of you uh, based on which inform the direction, that can also be, uh, be helpful. So um, having the strategic view and then within that, having some tactical um, uh, opportunities can, can be very helpful uh, in building out your roadmap. That's how I would go. Victoria, in your opinion, what are some examples of zero trust uh, policy considerations? And just in general, what are some tips that you have for organizations that are looking to implement zero trust and start off on their journey? Right, and the nice thing about zero trust being a design principle is that you can have the total freedom to design it any way you want. I mean, Fabrizio already said, you know, it's, it's kind of attribute context-based. Merit also said, you know, there are frameworks out there to help you, but in the end, you're the one designing the policy. So it's not only, um, who are your users and what are they trying to ac access? Obviously that's very important, but it's also like, how are they doing it? And in what way are they doing it? So once you know kind of the context of, you know, when does someone and how does someone access, you know, a certain uh, asset? And again, it doesn't need to be a human accessing a machine. It can be from machine to machine. You can design the conditions which are required to have that access. And, also design how you want to respond to the outcome of those conditions. So are you like the right user to access the, the asset? Do you have the right privileges or was it preceded by like a high amount of fill login attempts, which you already give an idea like, mm, is this like a valid request? And are you accessing the access from, you know, from the right device on the right circumstances? Meaning like, do you have a trusted healthy device? Do you have the latest updates? Do you have a firewall and antivirus enabled from where you're trying to access something? Or are you behinding behind the Tor browser seized by ransomware using a jailbroken device? And, or does your IP address, you know, uh, matches a known malicious botnet IP address? And shouldn't be, you be sleeping around this time when you're trying to access this? You can go as crazy as you, you want to. Um, you just have to meet the criteria that makes sense for you, for your organization, for your company, that you know a certain person in a certain role in a certain time from a certain destination is trying to access the assets and also what the actions are. Is someone trying to delete something? Are they trying to exfiltrate or download something? And you can respond differently to deny the access, to only provide read-only access, um, not be able to you know download or forward the the whatever information you're trying to attempt. It's all up to you. And, the biggest tip that I can give, you know, to 
if you want to implement the strategy is to start out small. I think Summer already mentioned it, like start, you know, from a small part where you feel comfortable and testing it out because you don't want to do this with your most crucial assets in the first place. If something goes wrong, a lot of people or assets might be affected. Just so start out small, play around a little and um, see where it takes you. Great, that's great advice. Um, a final question for this is subtopic is for Fabrizio and I want you to get your, your input on this or your take on this because you're coming from that. I think you lost him. Oh, we lost Fabrizio? Yeah, yeah, I'm sure he will join back, but maybe go to the next person. All right, so, so we will go on to the next, uh, to the next topic, which is, which is adoption challenges when it comes to zero trust. And so maybe Merit, I can ask you, uh, if we know what zero trust is and we know how effective it can be, why isn't it being done everywhere? Yeah, I mean, so first of all, as we've already pointed out, one, it's not like a one-stop solution. Uh, you know, it's a process. So you're going to try to do appropriate controls throughout your pipeline to production, throughout your um, stack, throughout your, you know, users and, and resources. And so that is a much more process driven than like end state driven um, goal. So I think just as with most other things in security, what we're really talking about is allowing folks to make intelligent decisions around sort of like the healthy amount of friction that we're going to introduce. Um, and so that's not um, that's not something that's going to be done in a day. You're going to put in some policies, and when developers bump up against them, they're going to get frustrated, and then they come to you as the security team, and you parse whether or not they were applied in a way that you think is putting the right kind of constraints on. And you know, it's going to be an iterative process. Um, but the other thing is, I think zero trust is also a, a sort of core building block of understanding how things look different in a logical constraint world instead of just a physical one. So rather than worrying about the rogue server under someone's desk, or frankly, I mean, like even this device, like I, my computer could die tomorrow and I wouldn't care, right? Because we're really talking about ephemeral um, assets and architectures. And, um, you know, part of this is inherent to the cloud. So for example, every, you know, in cloud, everything is an API call, right? All of those APIs go over the open internet. They're just protected by TLS and authenticated with SIG before. Like we have this inherent belief that math works. Um, and so I think that it then changes your approach for how you're going to implement your perimeters and your other controls. There are some elements that are logical and that then require you to understand how that works. So, you know, your web server gets popped and you kill it, spin up a new one. You haven't solved your problem. Um, you know, the thing about ephemeral architectures is that you actually need to get back to a known good state or adjust your, you know, uh, templatizing, whether it's a cloud formation template or, a, um, you know, a, a Terraform from HashiCorp or whatever, um, you know, but just getting getting used to having the mix of immutable and ephemeral architectures. And by immutable, I mean the fact that you can come back to a known good state because you can use templatizing, you can use um, you know, roles and permissions that are replicable. Um, and then also um, ephemeral in the sense that you can kill it and you know, spin up, spin down, kill an architecture, um, come back to it. You know? And I think that that then changes how we do security. So for example, there's a function in Aurora where you can clone the database. Well, folks who are concerned about database drift like, you could just be constantly pinging to see when data is altered. But again, it comes back to this logging and monitoring. 
that's a canary, really. It just doesn't look like canaries as a service like people are expecting to see for if they were used to security 15 years ago. Um, so thinking about how logical controls and the ability to visualize and then um, automate around configuration drift is really core to the way that you'll implement. Great, thank you so much for that. So Rizia, I missed uh, I missed a you know question that I had for you. Um, so I'm gonna circle back to it just a quick for a quick second. Um, since you're coming from the financial service industry, um, which is known to have uh, several legacy technologies and systems still lying around somewhere covered in cobwebs, what do you think is the right approach to deal with legacy while trying to implement a zero trust approach? Yeah, first of all, apol uh, apologies for uh, being offline. Uh, my connection crashed. I don't know why. Uh, this is a very good question. I don't see this issue only for legacy system, but also for systems that for various reasons cannot be catch. Uh, imagine like uh, high-speed, low latency networks or some uh, medical devices. Uh, uh, these are basically cases where you cannot, uh, you cannot catch that. Uh, my approach would be, uh, would be this one. So first of all is, uh, identifying these legacy or special systems. Uh, I know it sounds really simple advice, but uh, uh, as we mentioned earlier, uh, asset management is not always the, the strong suit for, for a company, especially for an enterprise. And once identified that you, can, you need to have a strategy to deal with that, uh, it, could be, uh, it, it could be a plan to replace it uh, uh, in the long term, and in this case, I personally suggest to review your architecture standard to always include application lifecycle and or system lifecycle and an exit strategy. Uh, it could be upgraded, but it's not always possible. And specifically to, uh, to a zero trust is putting an isolated network, uh, isolate when there is a network uh, using uh, network segmentation. Uh, we can identify a web firewall or encapsulate the insecure protocol. Or, in very extreme case, use a Gaga diode that is basically interrupting a connection, and you can connect the device only when it's needed. I uh, I personally had a case where we had to put we can we were not able to touch one of the system and uh, um, the system was really, really old. And what the solution was just put a 200 euro firewall in front of it, uh, isolate from the network and uh, have a very strict access control policy. Uh, so in some cases you have to be pragmatic and these are the only solution you can, uh, you can have if you cannot replace or upgrade a component. Thank you Fabrizio. Um, switching gears back to adoption challenges, um, Wendy, as organizations are moving forward within a zero trust journey, what are some of the major obstacles and challenges that they can expect to face and should take into consideration when starting out? So I think one of the one of the things about zero trust is you effectively, whether the asset or resource, you're effectively wrapping your perimeter if you have, you know, as you as it were, around the asset. So, you know, historically you might have, instead of have that wrapper or, you know, have authentication at the asset, you might have it, you know, 
in a zone, for lack of best words, and you don't actually have access to um, to the actual asset itself. So I think it's the additional overhead that you have to um, of sort of the more granular control that you have to implement uh, for your organization. Um, I think with zero trust, there is a uh, emphasis on multi-factor authentication. So on, on that side, you you know, it is a bit of a change in user behavior. You know, if somebody who's used to just, you know, connecting onto their VPN all of a sudden have to, um, if they need to access a document, they need to re-authenticate with, you know, through multi-factor, you know, with multi-factor um, uh, authentication methods, then it's a change in behavior that's, um, that can require some adjustment. Yeah, I think that's a really great, uh, great tip. Um, Samra, in your experience, in your experience, what is what are uh, some of the most common challenges that organizations face when implementing zero trust? And yeah. Sorry. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, coming from the business side, uh, when you're actually trying to talk to executives or stakeholders, um, the first of all, the first uh, there are uh, usually what I see is that there are individuals within an organization who are champions of zero trust. They want to go around and like, you know, get some kind of sponsor who will allow them to at least test it out in some small portfolio or, um, or, or, or uh, some, some part of the, the business or the bank. Um, however, what happens invariably, uh, which is why it takes a little bit longer is um, there's always, um, besides the stakeholder management part of it, there's always this question as to who owns this project, who owns uh, who owns Zero Trust? Is it the CIO or uh, CIO's office? Is this the CISO's office? Is this the um, CTO or the risk or um, somebody else, the, the chief data officer? So it's so difficult to actually pinpoint who is the owner within these large organizations? And there is no right way to do it. You know, it, it, like I said, it can. It is in many cases a multi, um, no, sorry, a cross-functional um, project. So it can be owned by multiple functions. But this is the first major challenge that that these champions would face uh, when they when they're trying to like actually pitch the concept uh, or the principles the guiding principles of zero trust to to the to the um, sponsors the other part you know at lar large organizations is stakeholder management again it's like a multi um, uh, 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 um, sorry a cross-functional project but also the business needs to be involved it's also a uh, um, uh, change management projects. So the people need to be involved, your, your employees need to be involved. And one of the things that has happened, not so much here in the US, but like in, in um, uh, other uh, parts of, uh, of the world, like Asia, when you use the term zero trust, uh, a lot culturally, people take offense to it as though you are not trusting your employees. So there is this other uh, mindset shift that needs to happen that it's not about not trusting your 
your employees. It's just making it a more resilient, um, a more resilient um, uh, uh, environment. And the other part is like there aren't right now there aren't enough zero trust pioneers. Of course, we have Google, but if they they had resources, they did this from the ground up in house. Um, right now, uh, it's not uh, really a viable. Um, a sort of uh, example for many, uh, many of the uh, uh, institutions out there. And of course, there's no end state. So it's sometimes difficult to justify, like, where does this end? Where does the budget start and stop? Um, and uh, of course, difficult to manage the return of, uh, to measure the return of investment. So all of those things and, and legacy technology, obviously, but all of these things are the challenges that can, uh, I, I've been speaking to one of the larger uh, financial institutions uh, in Europe, and they've been stuck on this for like two years because they can't get over these basic hurdles, um, uh, and and it has nothing to do with selecting the vendor or the architecture or any of those things. So that's one of the big challenges. Those are some of the big challenges I've seen. Great, thank you, Samra. Um, we have just a few more questions, and um, then we're going to move into Q and A. So just a reminder to our audience: if you have any questions, we have a panel full of experts here. Feel free to, to ask away. Um, so we're going to get to the Q&A shortly, but before we do, I just wanted to um, ask a few final questions. Um, one for Fabrizio, um, since your master's thesis was focused on uh, zero trust for IoT devices, um, is there any advice to companies managing devices such as you know, VOIP phones or IP cameras um, that you can give? Well, uh, what a great question, and uh, also thanks for the for game uh, for the nice memories. Uh, well, I will generally say that I'm expecting some of these uh, devices to be isolated in a hardware network or could be uh, assigned to a private VLAN very. Uh, to isolate their traffic. Uh, these are definitely good practice where advised also by FBI and few other uh, government, um, government agency. Uh, however, that can always, cannot always be applied and cannot make a good type of, of attacks. Uh, at this point in time, uh, it's definitely it's, it's, a, it's a growing field and it's definitely some field to explore uh, if, if you want to have an academic research. I actually, uh, this was the, the reason of my thesis. Um, so I, I will probably say that I don't, have a, I don't have an answer for that, to be honest, uh, but I will say to when you select the, the basically the, this device, understand how this device handles the networking, uh, prefer always devices that have a central uh, managed console uh, so you can easily control that scale and all the aspects of networking, like how devices are assigned for network, how they are root, uh, rooted, how these are identified, identified may vary. And uh, the, all the, the approaches that you're going to, to use, they have several pros and cons. For example, MacAgress can be easily spoofed, or of which port can be difficult to change if you don't manage directly the Gaga Center. Uh, 
second of all is if you place your um, if you place your device in a network area in a specific network area, make sure that you know your uh, GIS network area uh, very well and is very well documented because. Uh, uh, I think when you mention, you usually have or a flat network or a network that is really messy and you don't have a traffic flows and so on. So if you have a well, well documented area, a network area, it's more easily to, to manage this device and to flow the traffic and to properly rule that. And finally, um, look around with uh, some, um, uh, with, with the law for the low hanging fruits, uh, meaning how to secure the, the third party user access uh, uh, and, and so on. So look at the traffic, look at the processing and so on. Uh, look at the, for example, the, the service desk tickets uh, in regards to these uh, third party devices. Uh, um, these the, the business processes are actually uh, what can help you in uh, identifying the uh, IoT devices and to properly secure them. Uh, I'm always happy to improve the answer. So if you have any suggestion or something that I forgot, uh, feel free to send me an email or I'll go LinkedIn and I will uh, uh, correct myself. I just wanted to add on a little bit here, um, like in the context of cloud, also, of course, you are um, in the context of IoT, you're inheriting some of the security. So when we launched IoT Core, for example, we made a decision to always require TLS network encryption and modern authentication, including certificate-based MTLS, mutual TLS, um, when you're connecting IoT devices to secure endpoints. And then we added TLS support to FreeRTOS, which is a, an open source um, uh, IoT uh, capability and um, with IoT Greengrass, you know, using um, remote gateway that relied on local network presence and able to run Lambda functions to validate security and provide a secure proxy to the cloud. So I guess these are just examples of ways that I think we're going to see increasing differentiation in the ways that providers can also allow folks to deploy IoT in a more um, concerted or like coherent way and are then able to embed security into the ways that they are processed. I would like to ask a, a final question before we move on to Q&A. This kind of open-ended, um, so feel free to chime in uh, whoever would like to respond. But what is um, the future of zero trust and how do you see zero trust adoption evolving over the next few years? I mean, I have a very simple one. I think the future of zero trust is like the future of TV. What do I mean? Remember when the old days we had those big black and white TVs and then we had smaller and smaller pixels? That's the same thing that would happen with zero trust. So if we went to you know, protect the big network to micro segmentation and so we're going to get smaller and smaller chunks of stuff that we need to protect. So if we have, uh, I don't know, a micro segment today, maybe tomorrow we're going to protect actual resource on a computing environment. So an application will run on a dedicated computer environment that will not be shared with others and it will have its own kind of security services. So it will just be smaller and smaller pieces that we'll need to protect. So it will really be zero trust because there's only one thing that runs on one, on one platform or one kind of uh, network it will be a singular thing. That's 
my uh, prediction. I'll run a little uh, texture here again. Um, I think it's interesting when folks disagree. Um, so I don't fundamentally disagree, but I do think that most folks who have dealt with fine-grained permissions, whether it's users and roles and assets and attributes, um, know how hard it is to parse those. So I think we'll increasingly, you know, if we're going to do that kind of level of fine-grained, we'll rely on computers more and more to reason about those. Um, and I think that, you know, that will ultimately, like in order to scale, we're going to need to also find ways to do it in larger chunks. I mean, like, so that we aren't just pixelating everything. Um, that being said, I think that um, moving to cloud means you get some of this taken off your plate. So like, as you go up, like I was saying, you know, patching can be something that you don't have to worry about anymore. Um, but there are elements of, I think, the ways that we are moving into um, the, uh, delegation of duties that will be increasingly textured. Ultimately, you know, the way that the technologies manifest change it or like the way you do it implemented on the ground changes over time. But those security North stars um, are generally uh, consistent. And so those objectives, I think, stay true. We want to reduce human access. Um, hopefully almost down to zero. Um, we want to, um, you know, free up innovation pipelines and constrain them based on, um, you know, guardrails that allow for perimeters. We want to, you know, like there are certain things that we know to be good. We want to be concerned with availability and the, um, you know, consistency of services over time. Those kinds of things like will continue to matter, but how we implement them will change, of course, depending on the technologies and how we execute on them. Anyone just quickly, does anyone have anything else to add to that? We're going to move on to Q&A if not, because we have some questions here uh, from some of our audience members. Okay, so now on to my favorite part. Um, I guess uh, we have many questions that have been uh, filing in here and, you know, some of our panelists have been responding to them privately and some of them have been, um, have been writing in the chat. So I guess I just start off with um, first the first question I have here um, from one of our attendees, um, and it goes like so. The goal of zero trust is clear. The challenge that most organizations have is how to implement it in steps to minimize breaking operational systems while increasing security. What recommendations do you have on the incremental steps? Which I think we, we touched a lot about on tips and, um, and different uh, layers of architecture, but um, Maybe someone has something in addition to add um, to their response. Uh, just to clarify for the incremental steps, it's uh, uh, let's say it's meant the uh, how to implement a zero cross or what uh, uh, what what what's the question for probably is not fully clear at least for me. Okay, so let's move on to the next question. Are there any solutions for zero trust that allow for uh, BYOD devices as part of the organizational solution? Uh, zero trust is, uh, uh, is a model. There is no specific solution. We actually ex explore that is, there is no single vendor, but it's, it's a multiple uh, solution orchestrated together. And I really think that uh, uh, bring your own devices part of the company policy, and if and that they are addressed by by a zero trust, uh, it's, but, but, but 
uh, again, if uh, uh, there would be probably a policy for bring your own device back to say, okay, if you access the system from your mobile or from your tablet, use multi-factor authentication or something like that. Uh, but I mean, it's, uh, uh, and, and this is also one of the, let's say, the, the, the beauty of Zero-Trust, one of the purpose of Zero-Trust is to enable the mobility of the work. Yeah, I think that um, obviously COVID has proven that, you know, folks can work remotely, maybe more than they ever expected. Um, but I think, you know, there's nothing um, at the lowercase p policy level that prevents folks from uh, implementing a BYOD uh, policy. I think that, you know, that's up to the organization, as uh, Fabrizio mentioned. I think, obviously, if you're working in something like a... Um, skiff i'm thinking of like us you know i came from us government work um you know like if you're in a literal controlled environment then you wouldn't be able to but most business enterprises enforce logical controls in addition to fiscal controls and so there's no reason why you couldn't have a you know byod policy i think organizations make up their own posture you know we have a very permissive policy for our devices for example at amazon and that means that we just have to have compensating controls in the form of a lot of logging and monitoring and you know um tick severity tickets of various dimensions and things get automatically escalated after you know x minutes and so you have to like put in place um other choices of how you're going to um make sure that you're observing and um responding to behavior appropriately but byod is not inherently uh anti-zero trust or you know not impossible mm -hmm. i think most i think most organizations at this point um are doing some version of byod yeah, just to, to basically to chime with what Mary said, uh, effectively, zero trust is a shifting mindset where basically your, the data is becoming your burger and not the, the, the device. Uh, so the data is becoming the new perimeter. As long as the data is secured, you can work from uh, your company device or from your personal device, so that doesn't care because your data is secure, you know exactly where it is. Yeah, I'll just remind what Victoria said, which is you first need to assess the risk and understand what you want to do and then decide what do you want to invest in. You can invest in a virtual desktop, virtual mobile, virtual editing environment, and then start from that as your zero trust, or you can just say, you know what, if you strongly authenticate that's good enough for me for this specific application or or data seems like we have another panelist uh, who's joined us um i don't have a good pun for this i'm really good with cat puns usually and not, nothing's coming to mind actually um but welcome <laughs> to victoria's cat um Okay, uh, moving on to the next question um how do we enforce zero trust with firewalls Oh, I touched briefly uh, getting one of the, the answer I gave. So it's, uh, uh, it, it really depends by the firewall. If you're, you're referring to traditional firewalls, uh, it's actually, uh, um, it, it's not possible because the, 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 uh, the firewall is actually just source destination port and protocol. So that's not possible. Uh, if you have some sort of automation or uh, uh, some sort of uh, uh, identity-based uh, um, automation API integration with, with the firewall that possible. Uh, I'm not referring to the uh, to the firewalls within the cloud, like uh, uh, AWS, Google, and so on. They definitely have uh, um, 
not only the firewall, but security groups, they definitely have more uh, um, capabilities. Uh, so that's, that's how you usually aggress. But once again, the, the firewall will be limited to as a network policy uh, enforcement point and not uh, and, and, and then you have all the different kind of enforcement points uh, within your network. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, what is a firewall, right? Um, if you couple security groups and access controllers together, is that a firewall? Probably. It's a logical one. Um, you know, but if you're talking about buying a Palo Alto or something like that, could that be part of your zero trust strategy? Sure, of course. Um, so, I mean, I think that, um, you know, the as we move uh, along this like continuum of maturity, um, even traditional definitions like what is a firewall will change, um, or at least it's not clear to me how to answer that, um, not knowing what type of firewall you're referring to. But I think, you know, it's it lends itself to the same kinds of control conversations we're having. And frankly, you know, we could back up a little bit and just say like, if you just just having asset visibility and um, and knowing like an inventory and having it um, you know tagged or whatever you know having it uh, be have metadata or classification according to sensitivity, you would be ahead of the game. You know most folks think that they have that, and then you dig in and there's stuff they didn't realize was there or their access paths they didn't realize existed. So. Um, some of the stuff that sounds elemental is also still worth doing, and um, especially as folks are in mixed environments and whatever you want to call it, you know, multi-cloud, hybrid, um, on-prem, mixed data centers, mixed types of things, you know, like getting your arms around a coherent, cohesive strategy for how to put those kinds of controls in place um, is much more textured than just like slap a firewall on it, whatever that might mean. Yeah, I totally agree with uh, what Merit kind of says, you know, you can use a firewall, that's, that's not a problem at all, but it's really like, why do you want to use a firewall, what are you protecting, that's still the fundamental thing that you want to design, how do you want to segment all the assets that you want to protect, there's no, nothing stopping you from using it, there's nothing really obligating you to use it, because it's still a principle, how you want to protect it, so you have the total freedom to do so how you want it, there is no right or wrong, and that's the most important foundation like it's not really about the controls it's about how do you want to use them to manage your risks and i might just follow up on um jumping there and just say um i i think i, I think i understand the sort of concept but maybe zero trust as a name is not necessarily the you know necessarily the um always that helpful in in terms of you are basically taking you're looking at your assets you're taking your risk looking at the risk you're looking at what your business is trying to do and you're trying to provide a framework so that it, you're not providing too much friction so that your business is going to complain you're not going to you know add so much overhead that you know your um your cfo is going to come and knock on your door and say you know what are you doing so i think it's you know it's a continuum Definitely. Um, okay, um, Samra, did you have, some, have something to add to that, or? No, I think it's been covered pretty pretty well, so I'm not going to say anything more. Okay, great. Um, next question I have here um, is from an audience member. They asked me, has there been any analysis of mean time between failures, um, NT MTBS, associated with adding additional controls to the hybrid or remote environment? Does this question make sense to 
Is it clear? Should I? I think I think that I think that person thinks that zero trust means way more security in in the concept, and therefore they want to ask how does it how long does it take uh, to get access to the data? But it's not necessarily meaning more controls, right? It's just meaning that you know you need to look at authentication authorization through the way to the data. So. In sometimes it might even reduce the amount of time that it takes you to get to the data. Sometimes it, uh, so I'm, I'm not sure that uh, the question can be answered. So it's really around what is the new plan to implement zero trust for a specific environment and what does it replace? It might be, it might take a little bit longer and add more controls. It might be even simpler and take, you know, less controls. Yeah, I think to, to expand on that a little bit, right? I mean, um, like this notebook is zero trust, right? But it doesn't do anything, nothing comes in or out. So ultimately what you wanna be doing is making some judgment calls around how protective you wanna be. And these might be to Noam's point, like very prescriptive. Like you could just put a protective control on something that only this one user in this one role can access it. It might be very simple and tight. Uh, it doesn't have to always be layered the way we're talking about. But I think because the world is textured uh, and because we want stuff, you know, as you go down from sort of the funnel of the like very tightly controlled crown jewels down to, you know, just daily access and the need to get stuff done, then you don't like zero trust does not mean that you put every available control on every available asset because you just won't get enough done. You'll be the team of no as a security shop and your folks won't get anything done. And if you're not a business enabler, then what are you doing? Um, so I think that ultimately, you know, hopefully what we're doing is actually kind of refining the approach, being thoughtful about the level of, you know, friction that we want to put on both from an access control sense and from a, you know, lateral movement sense and from a software root of trust sense and all these different dimensions. And of course, that is why it's nuanced enough that we're a bunch of experts sitting here still figuring out how best to, you know, guide folks as they navigate these light posts. Um, you know, it's a process. Um, okay, so I'm going to move on to my final question here, um, which is a question we have in the chat. Um, someone uh, from our audience has asked that they've mm, noticed that there are an increased amount of consumer grade IoT devices um, like Alexa and Cassetta smart switches which are bring, uh, being brought into business spaces and they're asking outside of isolation in terms of networking if any of you can offer any additional guidance on how to deal with these types of scenarios. I'm well, sure one, I would distinguish whether you're talking about enterprise level or like individual user level, right? If you're an individual user, you don't get to dictate how they've manufactured it. Um, so you want to just like put strong MFA on it and um, maybe limit where you're choosing to use it if you want. I mean, I have um, an Alexa device in places that I use it to like cook with and 
listen to music to um, and not places that I am consistently naked. Um, you know, that's just a choice in terms of minimizing your own attack service or like risk profile. Um, but I think that ultimately from an enterprise perspective, you know, as I've mentioned, there are ways that you can embed IoT and that uh, producers I think are increasingly relying on consumer demand for uh, security and privacy being a driver of security in the space. But it is true that like it takes a conscious decision. And I don't think that like the default coming out the door for most IoT device providers um, has a strong enough emphasis on uh, security. So it's one, it's if you are an entity that is consuming at the enterprise level and or producing at the enterprise level, I think you're in a position to do a lot more. Um, and we have room to do that. As I mentioned, you know, we've done this with green grass and stuff that you can embed, um, you know, whatever we would call it, modernization and, um, you know, current encryption protocols and all the, the good stuff that we used to think that small devices were too small for um, that you can actually put anywhere now. Um, but I think that as an individual user, you'll just, you know, you have fewer um, broad strokes available to you and you'll want to just kind of uh, apply common sense best principles. Sorry, Fabrizio, I think I... Uh, no, no, off, no, but... no, no problem at all. I think your, your answer is pretty valid. I have to say in an enterprise level, you have certain devices that anyway connect to the, the vendors, for example, for some updates, and that is uh, effectively blocking them will be uh, counterproductive. So uh, exactly what you said, Mary. So there are uh, some uh, user requests or customer requests and companies are paying more and more attention. However, when it's not possible to install um, an endpoint or some solution to monitor the traffic, uh, you have to regulate the traffic through basically uh, an external firewall or to network isolation like VLAN and so on. So uh, there is a lot, a lot of room for improvement and there is a lot of, uh, uh, and things are already improving luckily at the enterprise level, uh, especially if I think about uh, uh, the SCADA devices, not properly IoT, but still relevant for basically uh, the scenario of an enterprise. Uh, so things are improving. There is still a lot of, lot of room for improvement, but for the time being, network isolation is probably the, the best way to uh, get going on for, for uh, securing that. Great. Well, thank you guys uh, so much for joining us today. And thank you to our audience members as well. Um, thank you, Noam, uh, Merit, Samra, Fabrizio, Dr. Engie, and uh, Victoria, and Victoria's cat, let's just be honest, um, was the highlight for me. We hope that you're all staying safe and healthy at home, and we look forward to hosting many more discussions like these. Um, if you would like to get in touch with today's panelists, uh, feel free to reach out to them directly. All of today's attendees will be receiving an email in the coming days that have um, contained the contact information of each of our panels. So don't be afraid to drop them a line if you have any further questions on any of today's topics. And to stay up to date on our upcoming webinars, you can follow Hub Security on LinkedIn, on Twitter. There's also a digest, uh, Medium, and um, we hope to see you at another, uh, another time at another one of these great discussions. Thank you guys. Uh, thank you guys once more. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Have a nice thank day. You